All right. Well, good morning. I invite you to take out your Bibles if you have them with you, and I hope you do. Take them out and open them up to Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1, finishing up the first chapter of Philippians. As a church, we've been walking through this wonderful book the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, so Philippians chapter 1. Let me adjust this real quick. I think I can do it. Okay. There you go. All right. Got it. Um, Philippians chapter 1. We're in verses 27 to 30 this morning. 27 to 30. I'm going to read um, these words for us and then we'll go ahead and pray and we'll get after it. This is Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father God, we open up your word this morning and um, we are a people who are in desperate need to hear from the living God. Lord, you know exactly what's going on in each of our hearts. You know um, our stories as we sit here this morning. You know our history. You know where we're going, Father, and you know what we need right now. And so as we examine your words, Lord, we acknowledge them as to be just that, your word, Father. I pray you'd help me to be faithful to your word. Lord, and I pray that you would take this word and that you would allow us to apply it to our hearts, Father. Apply it to our lives, Lord, that it would encourage us, Father, to live the life that you have called us to live. Father, we love you and we need you now. I need you now, Father. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. Well, towards the end of the year, in late December, I came across an article in the Press Citizen. Maybe you saw it too. It wasn't a big article. It was kind of tucked in the, in the newspaper. Um, but essentially, the author of the piece uh, told about how he had recently retired and moved to our community, moved to Iowa City. And after living here for a couple of years, he found it uh, difficult to make friends in this community. And it wasn't necessarily because it was anything unique about our community as much as it was he was new and maybe the age, the stage of life. Um, he found it difficult to find meaningful friendships. Finding friends, he said, for someone of his age was not easy. So he took what he describes as a leap of faith. He posted an ad on a social media website and formed a coffee club, a coffee club. Okay. Sounds fun. I'd like to join. Coffee? Club? Sign me up, right? Now, initially, several men showed up to the, you know, kind of initial posting. But then week by week, the number of members grew, as well as the amount of times that they would meet um, throughout the week. And eventually now, you know, when you wrote the article, there's about 20 or so men that would meet three times a week, and they would have coffee together. But the truth is, they weren't really meeting for coffee, although that's really all it would take to get me there. They were not meeting just for coffee, right? The article's point was that they were meeting for friendship, right? That's the reason why they were gathering, for friendship, for community. The article was a bit of a lighthearted piece. It was, you know, kind of cute, if you will, a cute piece. But it touched on a significant, fundamental need 
that all of us share. A need that every one of us, every one of us here this morning can relate to in some capacity. And in our age of expressive individualism and, and political polarization, this need seems to be harder and harder to meet. No matter your age, no matter your phase of life, where you find yourself right now, it is getting harder and harder to make friends. In fact, there's lots of studies and research that shows right now that loneliness in our country just continues to increase across demographics, across generations. We are becoming, as an American people, more and more lonely. More and more lonely. A lot of connections are made to the increase in suicide rates and drug overdose rates going up. And there's people that are connecting the dots. As we become more and more divided as a country, we also become more and more lonely. As we consider Paul's words to us this morning, there's really just one big message here. And it's a simple one. It's a beautiful one, but it's a simple one. And it's that if we are to fulfill God's purposes... In our life, we need each other. We need each other. So go ahead and look to your neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. I need you. I look to your other neighbor and say, neighbor, neighbor. you need me. You need me. Okay. <laughs> we, as a people, need each other. If we're going to fulfill what God has called us to as a people, we need each other. What we see in this text is a summary statement is to live a life worthy of the gospel and to endure suffering for the gospel, we must stand together in the gospel. That's what Paul says as he closes out this last chapter, the first chapter in Philippians. I had coffee with a friend this, this week. He's actually more of a, a casual acquaintance. And, and he reached out to me because he was anticipating and, and beginning to feel that he was stepping into some difficult times in his life. And, and as he moved into that space where he felt that there were some de decisions ahead of him, some trials perhaps before him, he began to look around and he quickly recognized that there was nobody that he could talk to. There was nobody within his circle of friendship who he, could, who he could talk to, process with, who he could walk through this stuff with. And a wise, wise move, he simply called out and said, hey, do you have time to connect this week? I'm glad he did. It's a step of what this author from the Press Citizen said. It takes a step, maybe a leap of faith, but it is necessary. It is healthy, and we need to do more of it as a church. We need to do more of it as a church. Now, life itself is hard enough, okay? It's hard enough. Anybody who's done any living knows that life can be challenging. It can be difficult. But when you try to live with Jesus at the center of your life, in a world that is not all that welcoming of Jesus... You bring about a certain amount of persecution and of difficulty. It honestly just increases. And that's what Paul's talking about in this letter. There are heartaches. There are difficult things that just come with being human. Just come with being alive, right? But there are unique challenges. There are 
are specific challenges that come at us that we face as we try to live out our faith in an increasingly hostile world. Okay? And that's what Paul's talking about specifically before us this morning. This is the end to which Paul exhorts his friends at Philippi. Remember, he is writing to a church. He's doing so from in jail. So here's a man who knows a little something about suffering for the sake of Jesus. He's in jail writing to a church, his friends, that he started this, this, start, started this church about 10 years ago in Philippi. And the first, the first point that we have this morning that we see that Paul does is he exhorts them to conduct themselves, to conduct their lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel. Conduct, conduct worthy of the gospel is the first point. In first half of verse 27, Paul charges the Philippians with an absolutely critical directive. Look at it with me. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ only. In other words, whatever you do. Karl Barth says, just one thing. Every way. Now he says this in verse 18. If you look at verse 18, he says it again. So we know it's not really just one thing that he's going to tell them to do. There's going to be imperatives throughout the letter. Directives telling them what they should do. So it's not really just one thing. Verse 18 says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, just that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice only. Again, we see it there as well. All of Paul's imperatives, all of his directives, his exhortations are subsumed. They are part of just one thing. And that one thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What will follow from Paul is absolutely central to and results in a particular way of living, a gospel way of living. Only, he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now, for some of us, this phrase may seem a little odd. Let your manner of life Live in such a way that you show yourself to be worthy of the gospel. Maybe that's how we would read it. There's a wrong way to read this passage. There's a wrong way to read that, read that statement. And it's critical for us to understand what Paul is not saying here. Okay? So what he is not saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ is of supreme worth. It's the highest value. Therefore, live your lives in such a way so that you may prove that you are deserving of this highly, supremely valued thing, okay? As though it is something that you have earned. It's not what he's saying. Now, many may think when they look at Christianity, think that that's what Christianity is all about, right? Show that you have deserved what Christ has done for you. Live in such a way that you show you earn this salvation, right? Paul is not saying, here is a list of rules for you to follow, here are acts for you to perform. Paul doesn't present to them a program. Rather, he presents to them a person, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself is the program. And, and the gospel of Christ is placed at the center of life for the community of believers. The offer of forgiveness, the hope that we have of redemption comes, this is the wonderful news of the gospel, in the form of a gift, of a gift that has been freely given. And when you receive 
this gift, what Paul is showing, is that when you receive this person, Jesus Christ, everything in your life changes. Everything becomes a gospel thing. Okay? So as we live out the life that God has called us to, as we strive to be a gospel-centered people, we live in a way that shows the world what is of the most highest value in our life. And if you're here this morning, this is the wonderful news about the gospel, is that you don't have to do anything to show that you are qualified. The only qualification you need to be a gospel person is that of sin in your life which I guarantee you are supremely qualified for, as am I. Every single one of us, right, are in desperate need of this gift of salvation. And if you're here this morning and if you've not received that gift, I think that's the first act of obedience that God calls us to, is to receive the gift of salvation that is available to us in Jesus Christ. Regardless of your past, it doesn't matter where you came from, right, every single one of us has the same need. Now, this phrase, let your manner of life, it's actually one word in the original language. Polituomai is the word. Polituomai. You maybe hear the word politics or polis, the idea of city. And it literally means, and some of you may have a footnote in your Bible which helps us understand what it means, but the footnote simply tells us that this word, polituomai, simply means behave as citizens. Behave as citizens. So you could read the sentence only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. That would be the direct way to read the verse. Now, remember, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. Philippi is a Roman colony, and he's leveraging their understanding of citizenship to produce in them gospel clarity. Now, the greatest privilege a city could enjoy in the Roman Empire is that of Ius Italicum, simply Italian law wherein communities outside of Italy were treated as if they were on Italian soil. This meant that it was governed under Roman rather than local or Greek law, and it meant that those who were born under, in this colony automatically gained citizenship, Roman citizenship. And all the privileges that went along with being a Roman citizen were at birth ascribed to citizens in this town, in Philippi. The city's land was exempt from certain taxes. As citizens of Rome, people were able to buy and to sell property. They were exempt from land tax and the poll tax, and they were entitled to protection under Roman law. This was a tremendous privilege to be a Roman colony and to have this, this wonderful privilege of being a Roman citizen, citizenship that was there simply by being born in this city. They didn't have to earn it. They didn't have to apply for it. It was simply who they were. Now, my children in, enjoy the privilege of dual citizenship, right? They're, they're dual citizens. They are citizens in the United States of America. They're citizens in, in the United States of America. But they're also citizens of the country of Belize. So there are certain privileges that go along, and as well as responsibilities that go along with being citizens in both of those countries. Some examples. When we travel to Belize, there, are, um, there is a certain rate because it's, for a variety of reasons, um, there's a certain rate you would pay if you stay at a resort. If you are a foreigner, you pay a certain rate. If you are a citizen, you pay a different rate, right? It's a privilege. It's a, it's a, you, you, you pay like half 
to stay at a nice place, right? They're trying to encourage folks to participate in the economy, right? To make it accessible to folks that live there. So there's a privilege that goes along with that, along with buying and selling land. There's certain things that, if it, that, that it's easier to buy, and so there's certain privileges that are there. A couple years ago, um, we visited, and we I had some time off during the summer, so we stayed a little bit longer than we would normally stay and got our tickets. And as we're leaving the airport, of being the good father that I am, everybody goes through the line first. And then I, I'm not a dual citizen. I don't have dual citizenship. But as we're walking through the line to, to you know, get to customs and get on our air, airline and take off, um, the guy who's checking my passport, looking at my, my uh, flight ticket, realizes that I've overstayed my welcome. To put it to put it simply, okay? There's a limit if you're not a citizen to how long you can stay in the country without special, you know, applications and a special process to stay there longer. And I had overstayed my welcome by one day, okay? I was like, oh my goodness. All right, so my whole family, Natalie was kind of there close by, but everybody else is kind of moving forward in the line and getting ready to get on the, on the plane. And I'm sitting there and the guy's like, you could go to jail right now. And I was like, oh, wow. Well, I guess of all the places to be stuck in the world, Oh, it's not too bad, Belize. I'd take that, especially when it's negative 50 here, right? Um, Force me to stay, I guess. I don't know, whatever. But luckily, I mean, they were just graciously God provided, you know, this guy with a tremendous amount of grace and just recognized my ignorance and innocence, hopefully, I don't know, and just moved me along and was able to look the other way kind of a deal, right? Not going to happen here probably, but it happened there. It was, it was great, right? There are certain privileges that you get with dual citizenship. Paul is not telling them who they need to become, okay? He's exhorting them simply to be who they are. We see this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This, Paul is telling them, is who they are. Live like it, he's telling them, okay? You are a citizen of heaven. You are a child of God. Live like it. Live like it, okay? He's not telling them they have to earn it. He's saying live like who you are. Be who you are. The question comes, when he says citizens, what, what kind of citizenry is he talking about? Okay, is he talking about behave as citizens of Philippi? Live to the glory of Jesus in Philippi. Or is he saying behave as citizens of heaven? Live as a heavenly citizen here on earth. Which one is he talking about? Which one is he talking about? Well, it helps to look and see how, where else he uses this term citizenship. And he does so in chapter 3. We'll get into it in a couple of weeks. But verse 20 of chapter 3. But our citizenship, he says, is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. So at the fore of Paul's mind, this is the only place in, in Paul's epistles where he really talks about this idea of citizenship at length. And, and really at the fore of his mind is the heavenly citizenship that these, this church enjoys. But we also know that, that Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and Paul would certainly agree with that. As, as, as followers of Jesus, we too have a dual citizenship, right? We have an expectation. We have a law that we have to follow. We, we live on this earth, but our citizenship, ultimately, we are a people of heaven, right? We are God's children. 
Live out what Paul is saying. Live out your calling, your heavenly identity, your heavenly citizenship. Live it out within the civic structures of this earth. Christ is your king. He is of infinite worth, infinite value. Live like that's true, right? Your, our treasure is in heaven, not on earth. Live like that. Show that with your life. That's Paul's exhortation to them. And this should be an absolute breath of fresh air for us. In a world that is constantly plagued by political turmoil, by economic uncertainty, remember, people, this world, this earth is not your treasure. God is. God is. Live like that. Conduct yourselves in such a way that when people look at you, they can see that your treasure is not of this earth. Okay? Praise God for it. Next, Paul says that they should contend actively for the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel, but contend actively for the gospel of Christ. We see this in the second half of 27 and into 28. What does it look like as we embrace this identity we have in Christ? This heavenly citizenship as we live it out here on earth uh, in Philippi and in, in Iowa City? What shape, what form does it take? Paul, knowing his audience, again, uses helpful imagery to describe this life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. Look at verses 27 and 28. So that whether I come and see you or am absent. Now remember, Paul is in jail. He does not know the outcome. There's a good chance he'll get released. He'll be able to be reunited with his friends. There's another chance that he could get his head cut off, that he could be killed, executed because of his faith. He does not know. But what he does know is regardless of that, he wants to hear of you, that I may hear of you. It's so interesting to me that Paul's predicament, as undesirable as it is, that his primary concern is of them. Even the fact that he's thinking about them, how they should live. It's amazing. It's amazing that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So he gives shape to what this life looks like, the life that, that they should live, how they should conduct themselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel. And as he does, listen to the language he takes. This, this, this shape, the form it looks is that of community, of togetherness. And this, this letter to the city that, that Philip of Macedon named after himself. His son was Alexander the Great, who would be known as conquering the world. And when Paul wants them to understand the point of church, he's talking about church, people. When he wants them to understand what church should look like, what God's people, how they should live, he goes for a contextually coherent metaphor. The region, remember, was largely occupied by men who were former Roman, who made up former Roman army, right? And, and due to the city's rich military history, his recipients would have at least some knowledge of the, the common military formation known as the Roman Shield Wall. I'm sure we've all seen movies that have depicted the Roman Shield Wall, or as the Greeks refer to it as the, the phalanx. Now, the way it worked... Again, if you've seen it before, you probably are familiar with it. We would show up to battle. Kurt, we would show up, right? I would have in one hand a shield, in another hand a spear, 
right? And we would get out there to, of course, we would be at the front. I mean, they want the strong, you know, right, capable. So we get out in the front, lined up, muscles bulging, right, completely fearless, shield in one arm, and I would stand there like this with my spear like this. Kurt, my brother, would stand right next to me. Johnetta, you would get right over here on this other side. Shield up, overlapping shields, spears stuck out in the middle, right? And we would have one simple charge. Move that way. Go forward, right? And if you were to be on the opposing end of this shield wall, you would look and you would see a wall of shields coming at you, all right? That's the picture that these, they're reading this. This is what they're thinking of. The Roman shield wall. Move that way. Paul sees the church in a very similar fashion. The members of the church are standing together, side by side, and pushing forward to advance the gospel. First, he exhorts them, stand together. You can imagine if a member of that shield wall were to separate, perhaps run ahead, more likely fall behind But what happened, it would weaken the front. Its strength was not only in its number or in its formation, but in its unity. Its ability to move as one wall, pushing forward. Its many parts made one wall. So the church, people, so the church, many parts, different people. We are called to stand together, stand together, committed in our conviction. We must be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. This is a call that we should take seriously. We should not be looking primarily for ways to divide ourselves, right? But to stand together, right? In a world that continually pulls us apart. The church is supposed to stand together. Stand together. This is our strength. We are one body, one people. Now, we're not just called to stand there united. We are, but not just that. The church is markedly different than a coffee club, people. It's very different than a coffee club. A coffee club that's done well, you could sit there for hours drinking coffee, talking. Hallelujah, right? Sit there. The church is with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We are united not just in our allegiance, but also in our mission. And the mission is the gospel. Advance the gospel. The shield wall, folks, does not just stand there. It moves forward, okay? And I think this is a big challenge for our church. Perhaps you can think of different times in our history where the church has lost sight of this driving together, contending actively for the gospel. And what happens is it retreats into itself, right? It sees the opposition and it becomes terrified, okay? Hostility around us. They don't like our message. So just stand there. Maybe pull back a little bit. It's kind of uncomfortable out there in the front, right? Draw back. It's not the mission of the church. We are to move forward, not huddle up and content with our stagnation, that's not, the, that's not what we're designed for. We have a mission. Move forward. Right? Research shows that as people think about ways to find meaningful friendship, meaningful connection, meaningful community, there are a couple of factors that are absolutely critical. First, 
It's interesting because they line up perfectly with my message. First is you have to remain in a place longer than a year or two. Okay? You have to live. If you want meaningful community, you have to be committed to a people. Right? So I think the research is probably talking more about like a neighborhood or a city. Okay? But if you want meaningful connection, you have to remain in a place. If you want meaningful friendships, it's required that you spend some time with people. Okay? This research, I don't need research to tell me that, but you got it. Okay? Secondly, you know what else is most important? Remaining in a place. Sounds like standing together. The next thing that's most important is be committed together with some sort of a project, a common purpose, a common mission. Right? If you want deep, meaningful relationships, deep community, be with people and move forward with them. Right? This is what the church is all about. This is what we are doing. Okay? And we know that there's going to be opposition out there. Paul is writing this and he is facing potential execution. He knows what's lurking out there in the shadows. Okay? Don't, and the temptation would be for us to be afraid of it. That's why he says that we should be strengthened in the face of the opposition. Look at what he says in the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This unity, this standing and striving together produces strength. It produces confidence, even when you're facing a formidable adversary. Picture the shield wall, advancing shield, overlapping shield. And as you get closer to the opponent, it opponent gets clearer, right? You see their muscles bulging out of their armor, right? You see their ugly faces, okay? And you're thinking to yourself, this is terrifying. What are we doing, right? But then you begin, your legs might begin to shake and perhaps you're having second thoughts. But as you get closer to the enemy and closer to the enemy, I think what I think Paul's picture is, you know, look to your right, okay? Look to your left. Feel the breath that's beating down on your neck from the person behind you here, the ground quaking from the, the many, many feet that are thundering forward. And when you look and see those people, when you feel that breath, when you hear the ground shake, you should be strengthened and confident, even in the face of a formidable adversary. You move forward. You do it together. Their confidence will grow. They thought of the mission, right? The honorable task that we've been assigned to grow in confidence. Don't be afraid Right? We, we don't know much about the specific opposition that the Philippians faced. We don't know much about it. He doesn't refer specifically to it. He does later that there's dogs out there that are ready to just tear you apart. But we can assume that Paul expected that he, he expected their fate would be similar to his. Right? That as he proclaimed the gospel, got, slam, got thrown in the slammer, he, he expected the exact same thing would happen to them. Right? And the temptation when you face that opposition, when you feel the hostility coming in around you, will be to abandon the faith, abandon the community, just fall back. Right? Now, now, in our culture, standing by this truth, standing with this book in your hand, probably, in our day and age, probably won't cause you to be killed. In our country, probably won't cause you to be killed. Okay? Most of us won't, standing on this book with Jesus at the center of our life, conducting our life in a way that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, probably won't face, like Paul, imprisonment. But you may lose your job. You might lose your job. You may lose friends. Friends may abandon you. 
They, they may not like how you live your life, how you conduct your life. Your name and your reputation, good chance it will be smeared. There's a high likelihood you will be categorically misunderstood. You will be called closed-minded. You will be labeled, if you build your life on this book, the world will see you as utterly intolerant. That's how they, will, that, that's how they see us, right? They will see you that way. You will be rejected. And if you have experienced that, you know this is not easy. Folks, we need each other. We need each other. If we want any chance of living a life, conducting ourselves worthy, no matter worthy of the gospel of Christ, we need each other. We need each other. I need you. You, you need me. Lastly, we see the calling the unique calling that God has given us in the gospel of Christ. That's our final point. We've seen so far the conduct worthy of the gospel, contending actively for the gospel, finally our calling in the gospel. Paul tells us that this, this persecution, this suffering that we face from a hostile world, world hostile to the gospel, is, in verse 29, he describes it, it's amazing, as a wonderful, wonderful gift that's been given to you it's been given to me by God himself. Look what he says in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In that verse, Paul mentions two gifts that God graciously gives his children. The gift of faith and the gift of suffering, both in the name of Jesus. The gift of faith and the gift of suffering. Now, the first gift, I would suspect if you're like me, probably like, bring it on, right? Pour a little bit more of that on me. Give me some faith, right? But the second gift should catch us a little unexpected. Suffering. He refers to suffering as a gift. Now, Ed, I could, I could give you, I would never, I could give you a punch in the gut. Right? And you would say, you know, Pastor, Pastor Punch he gave me a punch. He gave me a punch in the gut. Right? But you would not label that as a good gift. Right? I, I could give you, maybe you could give somebody else a pink slip. Right? Like it's, it's over. It's a wrap. That would not be a good gift. Okay? But when Paul talks about what God has given us, the word he uses is, is a word that describes his graciousness. He has granted us. In his kindness, he has shown us favor in his wonderful design by granting us suffering. It's not a punch in the gut. It's not a pink slip he's given us. It's a wonderful, wonderful act of kindness. Suffering. How can, so the natural question is, how can our suffering for the sake of Christ be an act of kindness from God? How doesn't add up? Well, it doesn't add up if you read it out of context, but if you read it in context, it makes perfect sense. Look just right up. We might have noticed we missed a verse. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So you have to understand what God is up to. 
what is he doing with us as a people? What, what is he doing in your life? The answer is, he's using us to produce a sign. To produce a sign. If you remember, Paul is consumed with a singular ambition. He says earlier in verse 21 of chapter 1, to live, for Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He sees his whole, pur the whole purpose of his life is to bring honor and glory to God. He's completely consumed with this one ambition. His life's ambition is to make much of Christ, to honor him in all he does, and in so doing, putting him on display for the world. Really, if you look at these passages, this, these verses this morning, you'll see that there's two gifts, but there's actually a third one that we spend a lot of time talking about. He, he's really giving us three things in these four verses. He's giving us the gift of faith. He's giving us a gift of suffering, but he's also giving us one another. He's giving us one another. He's giving us fellowship, participation, partnership in this gospel. So the, the picture is that as we march forward and we see hostility, opposition coming at us, and we face that with faith side by side together, and we suffer for the sake of the gospel, Paul says a sign is put up. A sign is put up for all to see. For everyone to see, as you meet the suffering and you are unfrightened by it, you are, in fact, confident and continue to move forward, there's a sign that's put up over you. God's glory is lifted up in the face of your fearlessness. Shows how awesome he is. It's difficult for us, but he tells us it's worth it. It's worth it. If you keep the faith, and you march forward side by side. Now, perhaps you've noticed, I don't know if you have, but this past week, stuff, etc., vacated the premises. Woo! Glory, hallelujah. I mean, love stuff, but okay. They're, they're no longer on the other side of the wall. We can yell as loud as we want, and it's okay. All right? Praise Jesus. Now, as we think about growing our community, I hear it a lot. Ooh, I hear it a lot. We need a sign out front. There's no sign. I had a meeting here with some baseball parents a couple weeks ago. They went to the wrong church because there's no sign. There's no sign, okay? Now, we get frontage space. You can see the highway. There's some nice parking, right? But there needs to be a sign. There needs to be a sign, okay? Paul says you could come up with an amazing aluminum, I don't even know, granite, whatever they make signs out of, a beautiful display that says... Parkview East, right? And I think our hope is people will see us and they will know us and they will join us, right? Paul recommends, now, just time out. We're going to get a sign, okay? But Paul, <laughs> Paul recommends a different sign, a different sign. And the sign for some will be the sign of life. For others, it'll be the sign of destruction, for us, it will be the sign of Jesus. He's brought us together. And as we face persecution, as we stare suffering in the face with fearlessness, God says a sign goes up. People are drawn to it or repelled 
from it. But either way, God will be glorified. Folks, that's the sign we need here at Parkview East. That's the sign we need. It will not happen if we aren't together. If our shields aren't overlapping, it won't happen if we're not moving forward. If we're content with where we are, there's no sign. There probably won't be any suffering either, right? It's not what God's called us to. It's not what he's called us to. It brings an incredible amount of meaning and sense into our life as well as we try to make sense of what's going on in our life. God knows. And in your life, through your suffering, as you walk through it hand in hand with brothers and sisters around you, you're producing a sign. Glory be to God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for, um, Lord, just how you have designed um, this world to work, Lord, and how you have decided right to make us a part of that plan. But we are humbled um, at your grace and at your mercy, Father. Lord, and I pray that um, as we endure difficulties as we endure persecution, suffering, Father, that you would help us to recognize the absolute need for us to move forward in faith side by side, together. Lord, we thank you that you have brought us into a community of people. Lord, if there's any barriers or any obstacles that are keeping us from really knowing one another, uh, we pray just in the name of Jesus that you would eliminate those. You would help us to be real. You'd help us to be vulnerable, Lord. And I pray that you'd also help us to be kind to one another, um, to love one another and um, make it as easy as possible um, for others to look at the sign and say, I want to be a part of that. Lord, you know what those barriers are. We, Lord, just, we just pray you tear them down. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.